Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having praised God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are speaking seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing to worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goat, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering among the deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hebrews 11 is one of the great chapters of God's Word, but it's a long chapter, and I'm not going to attempt a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. What I propose doing is to highlight some of the key themes. But before we do that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we read in this passage about how Moses saw the invisible God. Our prayer this evening is that by your grace, we may see you, even though you are unseen. We pray that we may be very conscious of your presence with us by your Spirit. May your Spirit take your Word and open it up to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and to evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. That's what Richard Dawkins, an Oxford Don and author of books like The God Delusion, thinks. That's what he says about faith. It's a great cop-out 
It's belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. More pithy is the definition a schoolboy once came up with. When asked what faith was, he said, Faith is believing what you know ain't true. Blind trust, wishful thinking, deliberate acceptance of what you know isn't true. Is that really what faith is? That's not what the passage we're looking at this evening says. As we've studied this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, over the past few weeks, we've seen that it was written to first-century Jewish Christians who were tempted to give up on their newfound faith and go back to Judaism. One of the attractions of Judaism was that it had so many tangible things. It had so much ritual. You had a temple. You had had priests. You had sacrifices. In Christianity, you had none of these things, apparently. No, you worshipped an unseen God, a God you couldn't see, with the minimum of religious paraphernalia. But according to the writer of this letter, Jesus is greater than anything that Judaism has to offer. We no longer need priests because Jesus is the great high priest. He's the real mediator, the real go-between between men and women and God. We no longer need animal sacrifices now that Jesus has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin. His sacrifice is the sacrifice to which all the other sacrifices pointed. It's a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Now that Jesus has lived and died and risen again, the religion of the Old Testament has become obsolete. Christianity, the writer says, is the real deal. But because the religion of the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus, there's a degree of continuity between it and Christianity. Here in chapter 11, the writer points out how the Old Testament saints lived by faith, just as Christians do. He says in verse 2 that it was by faith the people of old received their commendation. Christian faith focuses on the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints didn't know about Jesus. They knew much less about God than we do, than we are privileged to know. But they committed all that they knew of themselves to all that they knew of God. They lived by faith. And so, as he encourages his readers to draw near to God in full assurance of faith, the writer of Hebrews urges them 
to follow the example of the Old Testament saints. Our passage this evening begins with a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The NIV translation is perhaps a little punchier. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith, says the writer, is a settled conviction regarding things unseen and things future. By faith, we are confident that things we cannot see or prove are nonetheless real. By faith, we are persuaded that certain things will happen in the future because God will bring them about. With that definition in mind, let's look at what this passage has to say about faith under four simple propositions. First of all, faith takes God at his word. Faith takes God at his word. Let's take the example of Noah. The writer refers to him in verses 7 and 8. By faith, Noah, being warned by God, Concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You probably know the story. Noah was warned by God that he was going to send a flood on the earth. Noah took the warning seriously. He believed God meant what he said, and he took appropriate action. His response to God, to what God said, was one of reverent fear. And so with absolutely no sign of an impending flood, Noah started building an ark. His neighbors must have thought he was mad. They hadn't had much rain for a long time. Where was this flood that Noah was on about? But Noah knew enough about God to take him at his word. That's faith. And his faith was vindicated when the flood came and only the occupants of the ark were saved. Then there's Abraham. He also took God at his word. When God called him to leave Haran and go to a land he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed even though he had no idea where he was going. He could have stayed where he was. He could have opted for a quiet life. But instead, he took God at his word and obeyed his call. That's faith. God also promised Abram and his wife Sarah that they would have a son, a son through whom a great nation would be established. As the years passed and they both grew old, they could have given up on God's promises and abandoned all hope. There were indeed times when they came close to doing just that. But in spite of everything, they somehow managed to hold on to what God had said. In verse 11, we read that by faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past childbearing age since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Humanly speaking, their situation was hopeless. But Sarah knew God was faithful. She knew he would keep his promises. And so she took him at his word. That's faith. Some years after the the long-awaited son Isaac was born, the Lord subjected Abram's faith to severe testing. He instructed Abram to go and sacrifice his son. Even if Isaac had been one of many sons, how could he bear to sacrifice him? But Isaac was special. He was precious. He was central to God's promises. And yet, despite all the confusion and bewilderment he must have felt, Abram was prepared to obey God. He took God at his word. Why? Verse 19 tells us that Abram reckoned that even if Isaac ended up dead, God could bring him back to life. Whatever happened, God would fulfill his purpose, his purposes and his promises. Nothing could stand in the way. That's faith. Let's take one more example. It's in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Not long after they finally entered the land of Canaan, the Israelites came up against the heavily fortified city of Jericho. The Lord gave them some very specific instructions as to what they were to do. They were to march round the walls of the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they were to march round the city, not once, but seven times. And then when a signal was given, they were to to raise a great shout. It was a very odd way to attack a fortified city. But the Israelites had seen how God had provided for them in so many ways. And so they were prepared to take God at his word and obey his instructions. And on the seventh day, when the great shout went up, the stout walls of the city came tumbling down and Jericho was left defenseless. It was the Lord's doing. All that was required of the Israelites was to take God at his word, and they did. That's faith. In each of these examples, faith involved taking God at his word. Christian faith also involves taking God at his word. We need to accept the revelation that God has given to us of himself and of his purposes in the Bible and supremely in the person of his Son. We need to accept that we're sinners and under God's judgment. We need to accept that Jesus came into our world on a rescue mission, that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death which we deserve to die. And just as the Old Testament individuals we've spoken about were given promises to trust and commands to obey, so too are we. We are called to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus. 
God commands all men and women everywhere to do that. These are commands. And there are promises too. We're told that if we repent and believe, we will be saved. That's a promise. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's a promise. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will not cast out. I will never cast out. That's a promise. Christian faith is all about taking Jesus at his word and committing ourselves to him. Let me ask you, is that something you have done? Is that something you are doing? Perhaps, like Richard Dawkins, you think Christian faith is belief in the absence of evidence. But Christian faith is not blind. It's not a leap in the dark. It's based on the evidence of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you haven't already done so, read one of the Gospels. It won't take you long. A friend of mine started reading the Gospel of Matthew, and before he had finished, he had met Jesus stepping out of the pages to meet him. Or you might focus in on the evidence for the resurrection in particular. There's compelling evidence that Jesus' tomb really was empty on that first Easter morning. Christian faith is not blind. Like Abraham, we have a God who is able to raise the dead. Faith takes God at his word. But secondly, faith sees the present in the light of the future. Faith sees the present in the light of the future. The life of Moses illustrates this well. Remember, Moses was born in Egypt to Israelite parents at a time when the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites and killing their children. Providentially, Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter, and he ended up being brought up in the royal court. He enjoyed a life of privilege. Moses could have remained there, He lacked for nothing. It was a good lifestyle. But Moses made a deliberate choice to give it all up and to identify with the downtrodden Israelites. In the words of verse 25, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What motivated him? The explanation is in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. These are remarkable words. Moses knew that if he threw his lot in with God's people, he would face hardship and suffering. But he also knew that the life of ease and pleasure and privilege he would have as an Egyptian prince would involve moral and religious compromise. 
because he saw the present in the light of the future, he recognized that the pleasures of sin were fleeting, but that living for God promised long-term reward. And so he opted to identify with the people of God, even though he knew his choice would entail a life of suffering. Where then was the reward? Well, it certainly wasn't in this life. Moses' life was difficult. It did involve a great deal of suffering. Moses' choice makes sense only if there is life beyond death, a life which rewards or otherwise the choices made in this life. Moses was prepared to forego an easy life here and now in order to enjoy a glorious future. In a similar vein, verse 27 says about Moses, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses put up with hardship because by faith he saw the invisible God. He knew there was more to life than what he could see with his physical eyes. He knew there was a God to whom he was accountable, a God who wasn't morally indifferent, a God who would reward him for faithful service. In the closing verses of the chapter, there's a very interesting catalogue of Old Testament saints. It's worth reading. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. What heroes and heroines these people were. What amazing things they did. If all men and women of faith could do these things, we'd all want to have faith, wouldn't we? But the list doesn't stop there. Read on with me at verse 35. 35b. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These men and women also lived by faith. They trusted God just as much as the others did, but their lives were so different. The outcomes were so different. They experienced suffering, but they were prepared to do so because they looked forward to a life to come where their faith would be fully vindicated and rewarded. They kept going because they saw the present in the light of the future. The passage tells us that the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, also lived with one eye on the future. 
Verse 9 points out that in the land of Canaan, the land God had promised to give them, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob never had a fixed abode. They lived in tents. They led a nomadic existence. They didn't put down roots. Canaan would be settled in due course by their descendants, but the patriarchs didn't live to see it. They didn't see God's promises fulfilled, as verse 13 points out. They only glimpsed the promises from afar. They felt like strangers and exiles on the earth. They realized that this world was not their home, that they were just a passing through. As they sat in their tents, they must have thought, there must be more to life than this. There must be more to all that God has promised than this. And there was. Not even the eventual settlement of the land was the sum total of all that God had promised. God's promises needed a much broader canvas than this life for their fulfillment. And so we're told that the patriarchs began to desire what verse 16 calls a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Or as verse 10 says of Abram, the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. They began to think, however hazily, in terms of an afterlife because they saw the present in the light of the future. Seeing the present in the light of the future. Christian faith also does that. Admittedly, sometimes we're in danger of playing it down. After all, we don't like it when people say that Christianity is pie in the sky by and by when you die. We want to point out that Christianity is relevant, that faith is relevant to this life, and it is, of course it is. But faith has one eye on the future. It must have a future focus. What we do in this life has future eternal repercussions. There's a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained. Let's not forget that. This life and its pleasures are fleeting. We need to ask ourselves where we shall spend eternity. If following the Lord involves a degree of loss and suffering in this life, what of it? This life is short. Eternity is never-ending. Faith sees the present in the light of the future. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Faith sees the present in the light of the future. Thirdly, faith gives assurance and conviction. Faith gives assurance and conviction. The definition of faith in verse 1 speaks of the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every Christian has rock-solid certainty all the time. Even strong Christians may wrestle with doubt from time to time for a whole variety of reasons. And some people may have a genuine faith that feels very weak. It's not the quality of our faith that matters, but rather the person in whom our faith is placed. Even weak faith in a great God is saving faith. But ideally, and dare I say normally, faith should involve a degree of certainty. Now, this is something which is not popular these days. It's an idea which is often challenged, not least by people within the wider church. You may have come across the sort of things they say. Faith is a very personal thing. Faith is, it's by its very nature, very tentative. It's arrogant, isn't it, for anyone to claim that what he or she believes is true in, in any absolute sense. Faith is what happens at the moment to make sense of life for me. Just over the past couple of weeks, I got a letter from someone with the comment, all persons on reflecting on life as it comes at them have to build up a picture of their experience which is comprehensive, coherent, and corrigible. In other words, it can be corrected. So our stance is always provisional and vulnerable, demanding patience and trust in ourselves and in the process. Faith is at the heart of the endeavor, faith in ourselves, in the method, and in the results. That's what a lot of people think these days, if they think at all. But is that how the writer to the Hebrews sees faith? Not a bit of it. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's because biblically defined faith takes God at his word. We believe what he says. We believe what he has revealed. And because that is what we believe, it's not arrogant, quite the opposite, to have certainty. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian lady whose family helped many Jews escape the Holocaust. Corrie herself ended up in concentration camp, but she survived and went on to have a very significant speaking and writing ministry. Corrie used to say of what she read in the Bible, the Bible says it, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's faith, faith which gives assurance and conviction. Finally and briefly, faith is essential. Look at what verse 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, faith isn't an optional extra for the super keen. It's only those who have faith who please God and are accepted by him. That was true of people in the Old Testament, as our passage makes clear, and it's still the case. We please God only if we take him at his word and put our trust in the Lord Jesus. We can't please him in any other way. Now, that doesn't mean that our faith is in any sense meritorious. We don't earn favor with God by our faith. Our faith is simply the means by which we accept all that Jesus has done for us. Elsewhere, the Bible Bible says that faith is God's gift. That's true. But we must still exercise faith. It's something which we must do. Our response matters. You may have heard me tell the story of uh, friends of mine who went shopping in Basingstoke um, quite a number of years ago, mother with her five-year-old twins. In the shopping centre in Basingstoke, they came across an early example of an automatic door, a door which opened automatically. The twins' mother explained what kind of door this was, but the boy just wasn't convinced. After all, he was old enough to know that doors didn't open by themselves. You had to push them open. And so he hung back. And not surprisingly, the door stayed firmly shut. But imagine his surprise when his twin sister walked straight up to the door. And amazingly, it opened. The door did just what their mother had said it would. It opened all by itself. The door was automatic. It did open by itself. But to get it to open, you had to walk up to it. And in the same way, God's message in the Bible calls for a response of faith from you and me if we are to live in the good of it. Faith takes God at his word. Faith sees the present in the light of the future. Faith gives certainty and conviction. But faith is also essential. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for the revelation which you have given of yourself and of your purposes in your word. Help us to respond to what we learn from it in faith and obedience. May we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, and through him may we have confidence that we are accepted and have a future which is indeed glorious. We ask it in his name. Amen.